This is episode number 29 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the biweekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal mainstream media cannot be objective, and the conservative now state-run media has been completely compromised. We, however, at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual one pod that's our twitter handle individual the number one pod as is usually the case so much to get to lots of news to review over the last couple of days but we're going to begin with a a really special guest Uh, his name is david schuster david schuster has been a uh, a reporter and an anchor and an analyst for virtually every cable news network there is from cnn to fox news channel to msnbc to al jazeera to current to most recently i24 a network on which i appeared with him several times but david schuster has recently left i24 which may or may not we'll find out shortly uh, provide him with more freedom in talking about the real nature of cable news television and its relationship with donald trump and perhaps its culpability for donald trump but lots to talk about with david schuster and very much looking forward to this conversation david schuster welcome to the podcast you know ziegler it is uh, it is great to be on with you um uh, I'm honored to be invited. <laughs> I, I have to say that this interview is rather surreal, and I want to provide, before we get into Trump-related issues, where we usually focus on this podcast, I want to provide some context for this interview, because it was almost exactly 10 years ago when you and I uh, first battled on MSNBC, because I had done a, a high-profile interview, the first and really only extensive interview that Sarah Palin ever did after the 2008 election, and uh, I think back i don't even know if you remember this but uh, i remember because you killed me uh, <laughs> you had, yeah you had sat down with sarah palin you knew her better than the rest of us did like a lot of look like a lot of the stories you cover whether it's penn state or michael jackson this was you know the first of, of many where look i was part of the mainstream media i was sitting in uh, washington dc at the time i hadn't talked to sarah palin i was sort of only knew what everybody else sort of said and there you were, you had actually met her, and you, you cleaned my clock, and I, you know, I deserved it. Wow. Okay, you just made, that's one of the top ten highlights of my career right there, David. I have to say, I have to say that if ten years ago you had told me that eventually you and David Schuster are going to sit down in a podcast, something <laughs> called a podcast, and that David Schuster will acknowledge that I cleaned his clock, I would have thought it was more, it was more likely that Donald Trump would be president at this time. Uh, than, well, you know, strange Strange things uh, do happen, but look, the fact of the matter is, um, I, like, I, you know, I think I've grown a little bit uh, over the last ten years and become a little wiser and more experienced. And and look, I was part of I was part of the herd back then. I mean, look, it was it was it was easy, particularly at where I was working at the time at MSNBC, to say, look, this is a terrible pick. Nobody knew who Sarah Palin is. That she's you know she's not qualified. And that was like that was the easy thing to do, and and also because she spoke in a sort of syntax, which is sort of you know funny and easy easy to make fun of. The idea that somebody would actually go and sit down with her and really try to understand her and say, okay, this is a, she's a little bit more complex, there's a more nuanced 
version of Sarah Palin, the media wants to give her credit. And I just regret that it took me a couple of years to figure that out. Well, in all seriousness, the reason why I mentioned this was not to try to get a mea culpa from you, but because <laughs> I think I think there's some interesting context to where we are today. I, I think that all of this is an evolution of the news media. And there are so many things that happened in that exchange between you and I, which it would never happen today, because by the way, one of the things that happened, I don't know if you remember this part, but you and I went, each, went at each other twice in one day on MSNBC. Uh, in fact, you guys promoted it because the first one you know, was such a battle. Uh, it was round two of Ziggler versus Schuster. And, um, and, and of course, that would never happen today for a number of reasons. But I, I believe that there's a straight line between the way that the mainstream media, which you have been clearly a, a part of throughout your career, uh, treated, for instance, Sarah Palin and other conservatives including John McCain, including Mitt Romney, and how we got to Donald Trump. Do you see that straight line as clearly as I do? Well, a couple of things. I'm not so sure I necessarily agree that you know, with, with sort of the media of Donald of uh, John McCain, in part because I was on the McCain, um, uh, covered the McCain right. campaign in 2000 when I was at Fox News. And, and in a sense, I think John McCain benefited from his sort of insurgency reputation. The media loved it and loved that he was right. you know, running a little bit to the left of George W. Bush. But having said that, sure, I mean, John McCain's best constituency was the media, and it, they both sort of benefited each other. And, and I think they benefited each other for some ways that may not have necessarily been helpful to the media. But I do think that there is a, look, there is a conventional wisdom. There's a herd mentality in most of the mainstream media, and it's very easy, and take it from me in all the different places that I've worked, it's very easy to get sucked into that and to essentially play along and not do the hard work of trying to explain that, hey, these situations are a little bit more nuanced. Maybe all things Donald Trump is not the best way to program a cable channel. And so when you get to a media that says, okay, we're going to be simply, we're going to set up this uh, contrived sometimes battle, uh, sometimes between the media and a candidate, sometimes between two candidates, and that's the only thing we're going to focus on, and we're not going to provide much context to that story. We're not going to give you much of the rest of the world or much of the rest of the United States. I do think there is something of a path towards a Donald Trump comes along and is able to take advantage of that and take advantage of people's frustrations with the media as an institution and believe that the media is not playing fair, that the media can't be believed, and as a result, a guy like Donald Trump is able to take advantage of it and become president. Well, let me just take, maybe not issue, but just provide a little bit more context by what I meant. I didn't mean the John McCain media coverage in 2000, which you were a part of. Right. Uh, I'm talking about in 2008 when they turn on him and, and, yeah. make, and make him even a bad guy. And so once the, when the media spends so much of its credibility and its capital, I'm talking about the mainstream, what I refer to as liberal media, spending its capital telling us that John McCain is suddenly a bad guy, that Mitt Romney is a bad guy, that by the time they tell us that Donald Trump, wait, you got to trust us this time, Donald Trump is a really bad guy, there's no one left on our side who believes them anymore. Do you see that? You see what I'm yeah, talking about no, there? I, I grant you that for sure. And, and look, I mean... <laughs> It is pretty remarkable that the John McCain, who was an incredible insurgent and, and sort of, you know, speaking about campaign finance reform and all these other sort of things in 2000, his positions were not that much different in 2008. And yet there was this, I think, sense in the media, oh, we finally have 
an African-American who could, be, could become the first in U.S. history to become president, and there's John McCain somehow standing in the way. And when John McCain picks the relatively unknown governor of Alaska who's got strange syntax and speaks in a way that a lot of most of the East Coast, West Coast media can't quite understand, right. or much less respect, all of a sudden, okay, that's the opportunity to pound John McCain and say, oh, if his first major decision is picking right. Sarah Palin as a, as, a, as a running mate, one heartbeat away from the presidency, there's got to be something wrong with John McCain. And that becomes the right. clear media narrative of, okay, not only do we want to see history being made here, but uh, a guy that we previously had incredible respect for, now we've lost it and it's okay to pile on. And similar to that, I've always said uh, that the mainstream media really, if they, if they want to understand why Trump supporters don't have any trust of them at all, no matter what they say, then maybe they should have thought about that when they had the pom-poms out for Barack Obama for nine straight years, meaning from the time his presidential campaign began to the end of his second term. Would you agree with that assessment on my part? Um, look, I, I'm not so sure I would go that far um, in the sense that there were some media, particularly, uh, I think, people who were attuned to, say, far more progressive voices who felt that Barack Obama was continuing a number of centrist or, or rightish sort of policies, whether it's on foreign policy or whether it's, for example, the you know assassination through drones or what he was doing with Guantanamo Bay. I mean, he pleased Democrats in his campaign by saying he would close Guantanamo Bay as soon as he took office. Well, that never happened. So I think at least for, from a progressive point of view, there are a lot of people, and particularly in the media, who, who were attuned to the progressive point of view who thought, okay, Barack Obama's been a mistake. As far as centrists are concerned and centrist Democrats and sort of establishment Democrats, which is where I think a lot of the media tends to sort of fall into place, if you'd ask them or, or place them in terms of their political orientation, yes. I think they cut Barack Obama some breaks. Um, there were some reporters here and there who I think would criticize Barack Obama, maybe not so much from a conservative point of view, but from a, this is a guy who doesn't know how to negotiate, he doesn't know how to uh, earn the respect of Congress by holding people accountable, by punishing people who cross him. That was a common refrain that I heard from the media, that Barack Obama is played too easily. But in terms of criticism of Barack Obama from the right, yeah, you didn't you didn't hear very much of that at all from the mainstream media uh, in the nine years that you include his presidential campaign. Well, I'm talking I'm I'm talking more about the cult of personality that uh, there were elements of the, the media, including it got into the mainstream, that treated Barack Obama in an almost religious fashion. Uh, I mean, the, I, and that's a large part of why I, I did the Sarah Palin interview and my, my movie was called Media Malpractice. I, I, I actually think Barack Obama was a good guy. And, I, I, and you did a mea culpa to begin this. I'll do a mea culpa now. I believe that people like myself were wrong about how radical Barack Obama was going to be as president, because to your point, he didn't turn out to be a radical. I mean, he was definitely a liberal in my my view, and certainly Obamacare, you could argue, was exceedingly progressive. But in by and large, I don't think he did that bad of a job. But the media coverage of him, you would acknowledge, David, in retrospect, was of this cult of personality, and that that may have played a role in how Donald Trump... Trump is able to sweep in and do this coup in the conservative media using the media uh, and distrust of the media to his own benefit. Do you agree with that assessment? I'll give you some of that, um, and I think you're you're onto something in terms of the cult of personality, and and it's it's a little bit different, obviously, with Barack Obama and Donald Trump, but at least with Barack Obama, there was a sense that okay, this guy is cool. 
this guy, he's a great speaker. He's perhaps one of the smartest presidents we've ever had. He was a constitutional professor. Uh, he's, he's very intellectual. And, oh, by the way, he can sing. I mean, there was, and, and he's, he's affable, he's likable. So, yes, there was a personality about Barack Obama that was magnetic. There was a charisma about him that I think translated well in this television age. With Donald Trump, I think the cult of personality was a sense of this guy is perhaps the most charismatic figure that we've ever seen on a presidential campaign, who speaks in soundbite every 30 seconds, who's funny, who can make fun of other people, who can create drama all the time. And as a result, it becomes like there is something about, I think, a cult of personality, which is essentially becomes like catnip, particularly to the cable news channels. And that is, if you can focus on somebody's personality, and somebody's personality gets you eyeballs, gets you viewers, you're going to keep going back to that. And so as a result, Donald Trump would get literally nonstop coverage from some of the cable channels during this campaign because his campaign rallies were amazing. I mean, it was, it was, you watched them, whether you agree or disagree with Donald Trump, the charisma, the timing and how he delivered his lines, uh, the jokes, uh, the way he ridiculed his opponents. It was, it was incredible television. Was it great for our country? Was it great for our politics? No, but that's not what the media has become about. And to finish that point, the, the media has become about entertainment rather than substance. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, look, when you can see that a Donald Trump uh, is entertaining, then you keep going back to it. I think where the media has made some mistakes is never mind falling into this game of focusing on, okay, what's the most entertaining product we can put on the air, is that the media have also lost all sorts of sort of balance and perspective about what is news, right? I mean, it's, it's not news when you think of everything that's happening around the world, Middle East and Africa and Europe, and, and, and you never hear a peep about it, and you never hear a peep about much of what's happening in the United States other than Donald Trump. And I think there's an intuition, there's an understanding that most of the viewing public has that says, wait a second, 20 years ago I could at least turn on, say, a CNN or a headline news, and I could find out everything that's going on in the world and across the United States in a half hour or an hour. Now, you can watch CNN for eight hours a day. You'll hear everything that's going on involving Donald Trump and whatever he's tweeting, whatever people are writing about, but you don't hear hardly anything else. And as a result, people realize, okay, the media's priorities are totally out of whack with where the rest of the country and the rest of the world happens to be. And as a result, the media loses trust and confidence of the people that it needs to sustain itself. And a guy like Donald Trump was able to take advantage of this and say, hey, you know, look at them. They are the fake news, not so much because what they're reporting necessarily is fake news in my estimation, but they're fake news in terms of what they consider to be the priorities of the American people and people around the globe. People do not care about Donald Trump 24-7, no matter what the media thinks. And let's be clear about why this is. The, the ardent Trump supporter mistakenly believes that this is some sort of a conspiracy to get Trump, to bring down Donald Trump, uh, that it's we hate Donald Trump so much that we're so obsessed with him we talk about him 24-7. That's not it. The reality, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but knowing what I know about the nature of, of this business, is that, the, that Trump is a sure ratings machine, and the biggest problem, I believe, in, in cable news is that 
it, because our attention spans are so short, I mean, my God, when you started in cable news and I was a guest in cable news in the late 90s, we used to do topics for an hour, one topic for a right. full hour. Now you, 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 you get two or three minutes. And if you get two or three minutes, that means it's very difficult to introduce a new topic without a celebrity. You need to have somebody that the audience inherently already knows within three seconds. Oh, Donald Trump. We know who he is. We know why he's important. What's new with him? You don't have to do that with Trump. With any other topic, you have to waste three, four, five minutes getting the audience acclimated. And there's just no time to do that because you might lose half a ratings point. Is that analysis accurate? Yeah, that's accurate, and in part because one of the reasons why the cable channels in particular won't spend the three or four or five minutes is that it's also expensive to put reporters in the field, have them do nuanced uh, reporting and, and put together pieces with camera crews and editors. It's far easier to say, you know what, let's just spend the next 20 or 30 minutes talking about Donald Trump, and never mind, you know, and again, that is a sort of one topic for maybe, say, an hour, but unlike you know, 15, 20 years ago, where you would have two or three experts who would be able to sort of peel back the onion and get into some of the nuances and the complexities. Now it's seven or eight people sitting around a table at CNN, and the only way you break through in that format is if you are wild and dramatic and say stuff that's off off the rails. And so you don't get a very nuanced, sophisticated discussion, even though you're discussing Donald Trump for an hour, but you're doing it with so many different people that it becomes, I think, for people who are really looking for some substance and some understanding, it's hard hard to follow. And as a result, I think people just turn it off. Now, I mentioned this is not a conspiracy. This is mostly uh, ratings driven. But let's go back to how this began. And I will never get over how the media treated Donald Trump to allow him to uh, effectively pull off a coup within the Republican Party and destroy the conservative movement and win the Republican nomination in 2016. And my view of what happened here on the on the right is that it was purely a sellout. They saw the handwriting on the wall. They knew where their where their audience was, and with their business model broken, they latched on to Trump because there it was a no lose proposition. Because frankly, they do better if a Democrat's in the White House anyway. Obama was fantastic for the right wing media, for Fox News Channel, for the Drudge Report. I mean, this is a scam. The right wing media, which I've been a huge part of for most of my career, it's a scam. It's a total. It is a business disguising itself as a cause. But on the left-wing media side, I don't think they ever really believed that Trump was a serious threat and that because he was so good for ratings and it was so easy just to stick a camera in front of a rally or whatever, it's cheap, it's it's free ratings, and it's this tremendous narrative, and it's causing problems for Republicans. But they never really believed he would, one, be the nominee. If he was the nominee, that was great because that would mean Hillary was going to be the winner. What do you make of of that assessment on my part. I think on that assessment you were spot on, and that the media saw this as a game during the campaign, and Donald Trump was the most interesting player in this game. And I think in the back of the minds of the media was, okay, there's, it says something perhaps about the Republican Party that a guy like Donald Trump could do so well that he can appear to he can appeal to economic populism. It says something about in this you know television day and age, here's this guy that's so charismatic. Great. You know, he's great for ratings. He's good for our coverage of the campaign. We're getting blockbuster numbers. Terrific. But you look at every sort of mainstream media newsroom, and I don't think you can find, you know, you can count on your one hand the number of people who thought 
there was a chance that Donald Trump was going to win the general election. I don't like to pat myself on the back too much, but I remember saying on a a public uh, television station interview in Rhode Island a couple of months before the election, you know, watch out because there's an economic populism, there's a there's a drain the swamp mentality on both parties that Donald Trump is, 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 is tapping into, and never mind the crazy stuff he says, or the grab him by the, you know, all the, all the sexual stuff and all the problems with women. He was appealing to a lot of people who felt very disaffected. But for the most part, to your point, most of the media said, okay, this is a game that we can continue until November of 2016, and, and then everything's going to be fine because, of course, Hillary Clinton's going to win. There's no way this country's going to elect what the media thought was a buffoon in Donald Trump over somebody who has been Secretary of State, who's been in the White House for eight years, who's done policy, who was a New York senator, who has traveled the world, who knows all the leaders. She's got the experience, yeah, yeah, whatever, about her emails, but so what? That was, I think, the view that most of the media had. And it was an absolute shocker when the media woke up in November uh, on election night and realized, okay, this is a game that is now going to continue and it's going to continue in the White House. And suddenly, the media is like, oh, my God, what has happened here? And doesn't that, David, reveal that the news media, especially the cable news media, that it's really just a game? It's a, as you, I think you used that word, game. Isn't this just really a scam? And in a weird way, isn't the cable news model remarkably similar to Trump's own model, which is Trump understood that you need to create a cult cultivate that cult and make sure that cult is large enough for you to sustain yourself cable news is exactly the same create a cult large enough to be profitable and then feed that cult not with truth but with entertainment or convenient quote-unquote truths that will keep that cult coming back for more do you agree with that assessment Yeah, I would I would add to that, and then I would say it's a cult that has decided that the, you know, the, I'm trying to think of a good analogy here with cults, but um, you know, the song that they keep singing is all about politics, right? I mean, if you care about politics, if you care about national politics, if you find it intriguing or dramatic, or it, it, it gives you a certain feeling and you want to follow it, yes, that's what cable news has become: CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. If you want nonstop dissection of politics, whether it makes you feel great or makes you feel terrible, that's your place. And it is entertaining. And they do a great job of you know, the production values at Fox and MSNBC and CNN, and they give you a sense that there's something urgent that's happening, even though I would say, you know, every time CNN puts up breaking news, they again diminish the significance of what breaking news used to mean, even on CNN 20 years ago. But putting that aside... They make you feel as a viewer that you are watching something develop right now that is big. It is dramatic. It involves a clash. It involves, you know, politics. But that's it. I mean, if you care about other things that are going on in the world, then you don't watch. And I think that's one of the reasons why I look for all of the focus that our political world gives to cable news and for all, you know, how much we talk about it and how much cable news tends to drive so much of the the media narrative. I mean, at any given point, there are what? On an evening, maybe there are four and a half, maybe five million people that are watching cable news in a country with 350 million people. Right. It's really not that many. Right. Because most people, you know what? They've got busy lives. Uh, they'll pay attention to politics maybe when it's election time or if there's a war or a national catastrophe. But in terms of the day to day battles, you know, it's, it's useless to them. Um, and so, but for, to your point, there is a profitable 
section of the U.S. population that does care about politics, that, you know, spends a lot of money on politics and elections and off-year elections. And in that world, yes, cable news is everything, and the cable news channels get it. But what I mean by the, I, I think you understand this, but just to further clarify, what I mean by this cult maintenance it's the tail wagging the dog. I mean, it, you know, be, when before there was fragmentation and the business model broke and there were only, you know, three or four networks, the networks put out what they thought was real news and they didn't care really how many people liked it or not because their audience was huge enough to make sure that they were going to be profitable. Now, because of fragmentation and the business model suffering and if not being shattered, you've got networks who will never tell their audience something that they don't want to hear because they know it will harm their bottom line. And and frankly, the two networks that are most like this are networks that you've worked for, MSNBC and, and Fox News Channel, both in obviously different directions from a political perspective. And I, I have my ire towards Fox News Channel, one, because I'm a lifelong conservative, and two, because I really believe that it's Fox News Channel, along with talk radio and, and things like the Drudge Report, that is that is holding the Trump cult together, that without them, you know, there's been a lot of people who have made the comparison to Nixon. Nixon, Richard Nixon, did not have a Fox News Channel or talk radio or a Drudge Report to hold everything together, and that's why it broke apart and he eventually had to resign. That's not going to happen with Trump, largely because of what I'm talking about here with cult, uh, cultivation, and maintenance. Uh, what do you make of yeah. the evolution of Fox News Channel from the from the news organization that you worked many years for to what they are today? Well, look, and you put your finger on something here. And that is, look, when I started at Fox News, I was there for the first five and a half years. It was an organization that said, okay, we're going to compete against MSNBC and CNN. We're going to provide a little more of a balance. We're gonna, not going to exclude certain points of view. And, oh, by the way, because Bill Clinton was in office, so we're going to stick it to him as we did during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And I, I, I was having the time of my life. I've been a local news reporter. I've led the Whitewater investigation coverage in Little Rock, Arkansas. There I am at Fox News at the startup. Within two years, Monica Lewinsky scandal breaks. And I'm working for a national news organization that's willing to stick it to a sitting president. However... Within a couple of years, I think Fox realized that there's something to this conservative audience that they're starting to build up. And, oh, by the way, if we want to get even more conservatives and more Republicans to watch, let's start bringing on some flamethrowers in Congress. And as a result, you start, and, and then I think you start to see MSNBC and CNN go the same direction. It was once a time where, you know, yes, members of Congress, they would fight like cats and dogs on the, on the Senate floor or on the House floor, and then they'd go have drinks that night. Well, it became, in the, in the era of Fox News and MSNBC, they fight like cats and dogs. And then they would go on Fox News or MSNBC and say things that were outrageous because they knew that was a way to draw headlines and to get invited back. And, oh, by the way, the more that you're on Fox News, the more money you can raise as a political candidate, the more that you're on MSNBC. If you're a Democrat, the more money you can raise. But the key to getting on a, an MSNBC or a Fox News is not to deliver nuance, is not to deliver some necessarily credibility or an intellectual point of view. It's to be a bomb thrower and to help them create this drama. Uh, and as a result, you have members of Congress who are no longer talking to each other. They're spending all their time trying to say, okay, who can be the, the wildest person out there in order to get booked on a cable channel in order to raise money to keep your job? Um, there's no room for nuance. There's no room for people having a, either a centrist point of view or agreeing on policy or reaching across the aisle because that model does not exist now in terms of what works for cable news and, as a result, politics reflects it. 
I think it's even worse than that, David. I mean, we started this interview by talking about this this fight that you and I got into ten years ago that that created a dust up for for a big uh, for a full day on MSNBC. I actually don't have a big problem with that as long as the people doing the mud fighter are credible, and I think you and I are credible people. Now the model is such, and I think Bill O'Reilly and Keith Olbermann, a guy that you, you've been connected to in the past, figured this one out, which is odd to me they figured out that the way to to keep your audience is to not have someone who disagrees with you but to have only guests on who tell you how great you are and so so that's yeah and and that's i think that's the biggest problem that i see today with a lot of cable news channels and a lot of cable news programs like look i mean as you mentioned 10 years ago i could i could have you on a couple of times in a day we can have you know uh, two smart guys i'll pat us both on the back here who can have a feisty (laughs) contentious discussion, um, and we would have our differences aired out. Uh, and whether it was you or, or other people uh, on the left or on the right that I had on back those those days at MSNBC, I had some incredible fights. I had a huge fight with Governor George Pataki over whether or not the World Trade Center Tower should be rebuilt or this nonsense that was called the Freedom Tower that looked like something out of a junkyard heap. And the person who called it a junkyard heap, by the way, was Donald Trump. Well, I could have that argument with George Pataki because he would be willing to come on MSNBC. We would have a fight. We would have an argument. But it was fine. I mean, it was two people who sort of knew this issue who were going after each other. You couldn't get that kind of stuff on a regular basis now because, to your point, it's so much easier to put on people that you reliably know what their opinion is going to be before you book them on your cable channel. You, they agree with the host. The, the cable channels have figured out that, you know, at least uh, when it comes to the big stars, people don't come on Rachel Maddow. I, I mean, people don't tune in Rachel Maddow to find out, you know, what a David Schuster or John Ziegler is going to say to Rachel Maddow. They come on to see what Rachel Maddow is going to say to a John Ziegler or David Schuster. It's a Rachel Maddow show, to your point of, about the cult of personality. Even the TV hosts now, it's all about them. And as a result, there's an incentive for the cable channels and the primetime stars to put on people who will bolster this personality, which is leading the hour. And, and I'll give you another example. Um, and way, the way it affects journalism, and I think it causes a major problem. So this week, the other night, there was Don Lemon from CNN, one of the biggest primetime stars, and he describes Donald Trump as a con man, right? It's Donald, Don Lemon. I, 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 the irony of it all, of anybody at CNN with all the crazy stuff that they do, accusing somebody else of conning anybody, but putting that aside, <laughs> there once was a time where if you were a primetime cable news star, if you had some self-respect, you would say, okay, I'm going to put this in the words of polling. The majority of the American people believe that Donald Trump is a, is a con man or a political scientist or a member of his own party. It wouldn't be me, the news anchor, saying that, because who cares? Mm-hmm. The irony is, for all of my complaining about news personalities and stars saying, okay, I now get to decide and I get to set the agenda, it may be terrible for journalism, but to your point about the cult of personality and how it plays in cable news, people now do tune in to a... Chris Cuomo or Don Lemon or Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity, not because they care about the news, not because they care about what the guest is going to say, but because they want to know what Don Lemon thinks. What does Rachel Maddow think? What does Sean Hannity think? And as a result, journalism goes out the window. The cult of personality, which we see in politics, gets perpetuated on cable news. And the American people are done a disservice because all it is really is entertainment. And it's 
preaching to the choir because the people who want to hear what Rachel Maddow or Don Lemon say are almost all of one political stripe and the same thing on Fox News Channel. I mean, people, independents and Democrats are not watching Sean Hannity to find out what's going on in the world. And uh, I want to go back to Fox News Channel for just a minute since you did work there back in the day for several years and you already mentioned uh, that you were right there in the middle of the Ken Starr investigation. And to me, the way Fox News Channel is handling the Mueller report and the Mueller investigation in comparison to the way they handled the Starr report and the investigation into Bill Clinton could not be more a more stark example of blatant, absurd-level hypocrisy that in, in a rational world would be uh, completely humiliating to Fox News Channel. And yet, I, I doubt that their viewers even have, at least most of them, have even put this together. Have you seen the same thing from the sideline as looking back going, my gosh, I can't believe that the same network that I worked for that was, was put Pushing the Star investigation is pretending that the Mueller report, which is far more substantive and far more serious, as if it's no big deal. What, what do you, I, I'm curious what your take is on that. Well, you, you bring me back to a very strong memory that I have of September 1998. The Star report is delivered to Congress. It takes Congress a, you know, a couple of days or maybe a week or two to decide, okay, we're going to release the whole thing. And there I am reading grand jury material on the air on Fox News, talking about how the president inserted cigars into her and then said, mmm, tastes good. Now, what was the news value of that? I don't know, but it was, it was, look, there was, there was no problem at Fox News back then reading grand jury material and giving credibility to a year-long investigation that Ken Starr had conducted over obstruction of justice and perjury. The idea that now Robert Mueller, who has been doing a two-year-long investigation and not into sexual peccadilloes, but he's going into, he's going into a foreign adversary which tried to corrupt our election system and a campaign which certainly uh, had, you know, contacts and had connections and a business deal that Donald Trump was pursuing in Moscow. And for that to be dismissed and to say, oh, no, there shouldn't be any grand jury material, and we should take the position that there should be no grand jury material, and, and Bill Barr has done just enough. And I mean, I don't recognize Fox News. It's not the Fox News that I work for. Now, there are some people at Fox News, and I'll you know, Shepard Smith and Chris Wallace, uh, and a couple of others who are, I think, taking a little more of a rational, journalistic point of view about what Mueller has done and what he's found. But for the most part, the the organization as a whole, um, it's again, it's to your point. This would be bad for conservative viewers to hear the truth about what Donald Trump was engaged in. And so as a result, a lot of people at Fox News are not going to give it to their conservative viewers because that'll drive some of them away. It's stunning to me. And I i mean, would you have ever believed it when you were at Fox News Channel that we would be where we are today? I mean, forget about the fact that Donald Trump is president, but that that that, that issues like this, that if we're if they were about a Democrat, let's be clear, if they were about a Democrat, Fox News Channel would be on a 24 seven Fox News alert until O.J. Simpson killed Kim Kardashian. That would be that would be about the only story large enough to get them off of the Mueller report if he was a Democrat. I mean, could could you have have imagined us being where we are, the evolution or de-evolution of Fox News Channel over these years since you worked there? No, uh, no because I, I felt that at least when I was there, and I still feel that there are a lot of people at Fox News who do have some self-respect, who got into this business because they wanted to report the facts, 
be aggressive in their reporting, let the chips fall where they may. And, and look, and Ziegler, you have done some you know, I'm pretty aggressive reporting on whether it's Michael Jackson or whether it's Penn State. I'm sure, in fact, I know that has infuriated a lot of people who are involved in those stories. But you did it because then of your own sort of sense of you know, self-respect or integrity or simply wanting to get the truth. When I was at Fox News, that's who I thought I was surrounded by, people who were just going to let the chips fall where they may, and they would get the best ratings by delivering the best product, by being the most credible and the most reliable. Instead... Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, it has been a race to the bottom. Perhaps they're freaked out by the few number of people who are actually watching, and they're trying to hold on to this sliver to remain profitable. And as a result, there's no mainstream cable channel that exists to simply say, okay, we're going to bring you facts, we're going to bring you straight reporting, and we're going to be aggressive about it. I mean, there are some you know, digital channels, CBSN, for example, which I suppose you know, it doesn't really have a, a partisan bent per se, but they're not, you know, are they as aggressive as Fox News was early in the day? No. Um, so where, where does one go if you want aggressive reporting that simply, you know, follows the money or follows the connections that doesn't give a whiff about political, you know, who's involved politically? I mean, where do Americans turn? BBC? I mean, the BBC doesn't cover American politics. I mean, C-SPAN, C-SPAN just shows you the hearings. So there's, there's no outlet. There's none. And, you know, maybe the Washington Post and the New York Times, well, they have their own problems. But there's no, there's no place where you can flip on the TV or your device and say, look, I want, I, want a, I want an unbiased, aggressive view of what happened today in the world of politics, in the world of the economy, in the world of – I mean, it doesn't exist. David, let me ask you just a couple more questions before we go and, and, and look to the future. But before we look to the future, I want uh, we've mentioned uh, at least one name here that a guy I, I know you knew pretty well, John McCain, who you you've covered him on that Straight Talk Express back in two thousand. I think about John McCain quite a bit. Uh, if he was still alive, I think that the reaction to the Mueller report might be uh, different because I think he would be shouting from the rooftops uh, that uh, this is outrageous and that there needs to be some accountability here. Of all the people who um, I am disappointed in, and go, this goes back to the to the, what happened with the Star Report. I mean, Lindsey Graham was one of the champions of the Star Report, and now Lindsey Graham, John McCain's supposed good friend, is now the the, the chief person in the Senate who has bragged about not even reading the Mueller report, who is defending Donald Trump, protecting him at all costs. What what do you think that John McCain would think if he was still alive today or was able to see what's happened with people like Lindsey Graham, his good friend, and supposed conservatives protecting Donald Trump on the Mueller report? He would chew Lindsey's Graham, Lindsey Graham's ass off, and he would grab him by the lapel and say, what the hell is wrong with you? I mean, I remember in, on, on the 2000 campaign uh, Straight Talk Express, having a conversation, I think, during the Super Bowl, or John McCain was, we were on the bus, he was on the way to some fundraising event during the Super Bowl, we had about 45 minutes on the bus, and he just, you know, he was just, we just were sitting next to each other, and he was asking about my background, and when he remembered some of the stuff about Fox News, and then he was asking me about Whitewater investigation, and about the Clinton, about the uh, Clinton Lewinsky scandal, and I asked him about impeachment, if he had any second thoughts, he says, no, the guy was guilty. I mean, it was, you know, it was, he, had, he had no trouble whatsoever declaring that he would have, that he voted to impeach Bill Clinton, even though that was not the most popular place for a lot of Americans to be back in 2000 or 99, 98. The idea that, I mean, that Lindsey Graham, who was 
a House impeachment manager. In other words, he was one of the prosecutors who went into the well of the Senate and presented the case for obstruction of justice and perjury involving Bill Clinton. The idea that that same Lindsey Graham is now dismissing what I think is a far more serious special counsel investigation and issues that go... I mean, right to the heart of this sort of democracy and our politics, never mind the rule of law, and that he would dismiss it so cavalierly, and that he would have such a, you know, that he's got such a problem with what, what Mueller has done and what, what people continuing to focus on this. I mean, I, maybe in a way, Lindsey Graham now benefits from the fact that you know, Senator McCain is dead, because there's not a conscience next to Lindsey Graham telling him, stand up for what's right, show some self-respect, remember the past. Uh, there's nobody saying that to Lindsey Graham, and I think what Lindsey Graham is calculating in his own mind, maybe Lindsey Graham believes that Donald Trump is you know, corrupt or criminal or whatever, but Lindsey Graham is playing a pure political game, that he wants to have some influence over Donald Trump, he wants you know, some Donald Trump to help out Lindsey Graham, and so it's a purely political transaction, and Lindsey Graham has made the determination that the best way to maintain that transaction is to do Donald Trump's dirty work and dismiss the Mueller report and be the guy in the Senate who says, oh, there's nothing here, all because Lindsey Graham wants something in return from Donald Trump, something in the world of politics. And I just think, you know, it's shameful. It's absolutely shameful. Wow. Well said. All right, a couple questions about the future. Uh, as we look ahead here to 2020, a lot of people, and I'm one of them, uh, see a lot of parallels in the way the media is treating the mayor of South Bend, Pete Buttigieg, and the way that the media uh, essentially put a, a rocket booster behind Barack Obama back in 2008. Do you see that comparison, and do you see it turning out in a similar way? Um, that's, a, that's a good one. I see it in the sense that, that look, Pete Buttigieg is a very, very smart guy. Rhodes Scholar, he is as... Uh, articulate as any politician you will ever find. And he's got an answer on every sort of policy question you would ask him. And he's, I mean, he, clearly he's smart. But to your point, I think there are a lot of number of members of the media who say, okay, great, he's smart, he checks up that box, he's articulate, um, he seems rational. But a lot of members of the media in their own mind are like, oh, well, this guy's gay. And this is an opportunity to have the first gay president of the United States. And as a result, I think... He's getting a lot more attention than he might otherwise. You um, think? Wait I, a minute. Hold on. This is a this is a newsflash. You, th- you think that if Pete Buttigieg was married to a, a woman with, with three kids, that he wouldn't be getting the same coverage? He wouldn't be on the, the cover of Time magazine? Really? Are you serious? Wow. <laughs> You're busting my balls here, but it's great. <laughs> and and then the, the fact of the matter is, look, Pete Buttigieg, he's, yeah, he's got political talent, and he's you know he's articulate, but. Again, he's, what, 36 years old, 37 years old? He's been the mayor of a city with 100,000 people. When I, when, I remember when Pete Buttigieg ran for, I think, DNC chair uh, the other, you know, a year ago, two years ago, and I laughed when I saw that he was running because I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. Um, and until I really you know, delved into who Pete Buttigieg is just a couple of months ago and then looked beyond just sort of the basics, I thought, this, you know, who is this? This guy doesn't have a chance. You or I might as well run for president of the United States. Well, but then you hear him talk, you hear his life story, you hear him sort of tapping right into this idea that the media wants more history to be made. Right. Um, and so he's, you know, and oh, by the way, I'm not sure that the Democratic field, for all the number of people that are running, is you know particularly strong. I mean, I think Elizabeth Warren, she missed her time. Mm-hmm. She's not bringing, you know, she's not exactly a rousing uh, public speaker. Uh, Amy Klobuchar has problems with how she treated her staff. Bernie Sanders, yeah, the progressives love him, but 
beyond that, who's going to help Bernie Sanders? I mean, it, it goes on and on. I mean, mm-hmm. Cory Booker, the progressives hate Cory Booker because of his ties to um, banking industry and, and Wall Street finance. I mean, and so as a result, I think there is a place for a guy who could be a transformative, purely in terms of history, right. type of candidate. And, oh, by the way, because he checks out the other boxes and he's not a disaster, the media is giving him a lot of attention. Um, and but, will it play out the same way? Will he suddenly be going into the White House because of this media rise? I don't think so, but I wouldn't be surprised. Well, let me just clarify. Well, let's amplify that for just a second, because here's my concern. And I actually like Mayor Pete. I mean, he is a smart guy. I like him as I like him personally. Uh, you know, I, I'm concerned about lack of qualifications. But let's face it, Trump had no qual- no qualifications. Uh, so I have nothing against uh, Pete Buttigieg. But we, but I'm concerned about what the media might be doing here, and I want to get your assessment of this. So let's say we have Obama 2.0, and they they love the narrative, they love the potential history, and you know, let's face it, you know, Biden and Sanders are old and. And Mayor Pete rides the rocket ship and he wins the nomination in a world where him being gay doesn't matter. In fact, it's it's a positive in the Democratic primary. And now all of a sudden he's in a general election against the Donald Trump who's not going to be afraid to use the gay issue against him in states like Pennsylvania and Florida where it still matters. I'm concerned. I'm concerned that 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 he might be be he he might be set up for a situation where he is far less uh, equipped to handle a general election than Barack Obama was. When let's face it, everyone knew immediately Barack Obama is half black. Just look at him. I think most of the American public has no idea that Pete Buttigieg is even gay. And so and so I think that I think we're we're in a very dangerous situation if the goal here is to beat Donald Trump. Your take. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, there are a couple of things that I see in Pete Buttigieg that I think could, though, make for an interesting race against Donald Trump. And that is usually when you have a, an incumbent president who's below 50% in their approval ratings, um, the, the electorate tends to want a candidate who is everything that current president is not, right? right. So there's Pete Buttigieg. She has been a military right. veteran. Donald Trump right. was not. I, I, get uh, it. He, I get it. He, he's thoughtful. Donald Trump is, is not necessarily thoughtful. Donald Trump is bombastic. He was a Rhodes Scholar. Donald Trump was right. not. He's a very religious guy. Donald Trump is not. He's gay. Donald Trump is certainly not gay. He's as <laughs> right. much of a hound dog as you'll find. So, so yes, there, there are differences where I think that this could be problematic for Democrats. Again, they'll get to this idea of well, Pete Buttigieg is very young, and he looks very young. And the idea of standing up to the mullahs in Iran or how you're going to deal with the Russians, or despite all of that, there are a number of people who are not paying attention to what has been happening with Donald Trump. They see the economy is strong. We're not in another war. Hey, everything's great. Donald Trump is sort of entertaining, but I don't need to worry. Suddenly, if Pete Buttigieg is on the scene, and people have to start thinking about, okay, who might get us into what, what would happen if we are in another sort of war? Um, what are the challenges going to be in terms of foreign policy? Is this a guy who could stand up to foreign leaders? Even though I would argue that Donald Trump has made a mess of foreign policy, whether it's China or, or whether it's you know, dealing with Russia, but there's still the fear factor that comes into play during a campaign where I think people would have edged <clears throat> simply his age and how he looks could be could be a problem. Well, and when you mentioned how he looks, it's not just the Alfred E. Newman that uh, Trump is now calling him. He's very short. 
and, and, and small of stature. On a debate stage, Trump is going to literally tower over him. And unfortunately, it's as, as absurd as it is, that stuff matters. And, uh, and I think it's naive to say that it doesn't. Um, all right, now uh, let's go one last thing on Trump. Trump has said, sure. and I agree with this, whether it's conscious or subconscious is what I want you to answer. Trump has said the media needs him to win in 2020 because without him, uh, with their business models broken, they're all going to go broke and lots of people are going to be laid off uh, if uh, a more boring president replaces him. What What is your assessment of that? Donald Trump is absolutely right. He's absolutely right. Uh, most reporters, most people working in newsrooms and whatnot, they don't believe that. But most business owners, most people who are running these media organizations, they get it. The New York Times is making a fortune. Uh, A lot of the cable news channels are are doing better than they were a few years ago because of Donald Trump and because of the controversy. If you have Joe Biden, the Pete Buttigieg, even a Mike Pence, let's suppose Donald Trump doesn't make it and he's impeached for for whatever reason. (laughs) And suddenly you have a more traditional president who's boring compared to, to Donald Trump. And the media actually have to go back and start covering policy and the economy and trade and uh, and what's going on in the heartland, the media's toast. I mean, they're finished with that. Um, the catnip ends. And so as a result, I think, and, and also because of how you know people are getting their news and information these days, we already have a lot of people who are cutting the cord or getting all of their information online. That's a problem already for the cable channels, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, who they get money from cable companies to distribute their product. As a result, they cannot put in a live digital feed for free online. Well, there are, there are OTT channels, digital channels, which are starting up, which will do that. And so there's a challenge to the cable news model from a business standpoint anyway. And then, oh, by the way, if the greatest source of their most compelling content is suddenly not there, and there's not a controversy over a guy like Donald Trump, you bet the media is going to lose viewers. Um, and it may be great for journalism and great for, for America for Donald Trump not to be president, but it's not going to be great for the media. And when you have that kind of pressure that exists, I think, on the media for all the reporters who say, no, we want to cover everything. We're going to stick it to Donald Trump. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to tell the truth. You know what? It's uh, Unfortunately, I mean, the field reporters, the people in the newsroom aren't the ones who are necessarily making the big business decisions about where the resources are allocated for coverage. And so, look, I, I, I hate to say that I agree with Donald Trump on anything, but he's right. He's been great for the media. And it's a danger for the media if Donald Trump is not reelected. And will that impact coverage of him in 2020 or more specifically coverage of his opponent? Because the, the way that this would happen, and it's not a conspiracy, I believe a lot of it's subconscious, is that if they want him, if they're afraid of what happens if he's not there, they hold his opponent to a much higher standard than they would ordinarily. Do you see that as the way this would manifest itself? That's a tough one. I I. I... I'm not sure. I mean, I hope not. I hope that, I mean, that the reporting, the, the coverage of whoever is Donald Trump's opponent is just going to be straight and fair, and this idea of what's good for business is not going to enter into the equation. But I do fear that we'll be in a situation like we were in 2016, where CNN got a ton of flack for taking Donald Trump rally live from start to finish, day after day after day. If it's Donald Trump in 2020, and those rallies are taken live day after day, will the media also take, say, suppose it's Joe Biden as a candidate, will they take his rallies live? I mean, (laughs) and so, and I guarantee that, um, you know, I don't think Joe Biden is going to rate as well 
in terms of a, a political rally is a Donald Trump. Even if more Americans agree with Joe Biden's policies, with Joe Biden's approach to America, Donald Trump is riveting to watch, even if you hate his guts. And so it's an easy call for the cable channels to say, okay, Donald Trump's speaking, we're going to take him on for 90 minutes during his entire rally. Would they make the same decision about the Democratic candidate, the Democratic nominee? I'm not so sure. I'm not sure. And then what happens, you know, when you, month after month, you start to see that maybe your ratings are higher when Donald Trump is speaking than when Joe Biden is speaking. Does that create some pressure? I mean, so it's, it's, a, tough, it's a tough issue. And, and I agree. I don't think there's a conspiracy out there to get Donald Trump reelected. But there are pressures on the media simply by the model the media has created and the way the media has hurting the United States by its disregard for basic journalism and basic integrity. The media has created this position it finds itself in, and it's, um, and it's only going to get worse. I believe that uh, Donald Trump's greatest genius is his understanding of how corrupt the news media has become and understanding their vulnerabilities and taking advantage of them. And that's why I think he'll be very tough to beat in 2020. Uh, David, last question. What's next for for David Schuster? That's a a good question. Um, I don't know. I think I'm going to start this uh, digital cable channel, and Ziegler, I'm going to give you half the hours, and I'm going to take the other (laughs) half, and maybe we'll do some uh, some joint hours. Because, you know what? Frankly, uh, there's... The media world, American news consumers, they need more John Ziegler's out there. They need perhaps maybe more David Schuster's, people who tend to find ourselves uh, on the outside of some management, which is concerned about, uh, about certain points of view or approaches to journalism. But, uh, but I'm not sure. I'm, I'm taking some time. Most importantly, I'm taking some time uh, this summer with the kids. I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old and a wife I adore, so being able to spend time with them is great. And then we'll see. We'll see what the, what the fall brings. But, uh, but Ziegler, your stuff has been terrific um, on media and your columns. And, and again, you cleaned my clock 10 years ago. I deserved it, and I wouldn't want to get into another fight with you again today because he would do it all over again. So congratulations on all of your amazing work. Wow. Thanks so much, David, and thanks so much for your time and, and having the courage to speak the truth about the news media when so few others who are in the business are willing to do that. And if you happen to find a few hundred million dollars, let me know and we'll, and we'll do something. Uh, <laughs> All right. That's the deal. David, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Wow, that was uh, an awesome interview. Thanks so much to David Schuster for uh, his time and his honesty. And it's always nice to get compliments, especially from guys that you battled with 10 years ago. Uh, and I have to tell you, uh, you know, if you go on YouTube, that is probably there somewhere. I know it was part of my movie, Media Malpractice. I mean, we really went at it. And I never would have imagined 10 years later we would be having that interview in a podcast called Individual One about the presidency of Donald Trump. It is such a strange world in which we live that's for darn sure correct um we don't have that much time in the left in the hour so i just want to quickly go through some of the things that have happened over the last couple of days since our last episode of the individual one podcast number one as i suspected there's problems with robert Mueller's testimony now i don't know whether or not uh, this is directly because of donald trump not wanting robert Mueller to testify but as originally scheduled it was going to be next wednesday May 15th, uh, Jerry Nadler, the head of the Judiciary Committee, now says that's not going to happen. And he hasn't exactly said why, although they've made it clear that eventually Robert Mueller will testify, even if they have to give him a subpoena to do so. I maintain my position 
that the Democrats, if they're smart, this is where they draw the line in the sand. This is the line. You prevent Robert Mueller from testifying, you must be impeached, and you will be asking for it. Now, I realize that there's a lot of people, including myself, who believe that Donald Trump wants to be impeached, that he believes that this will be good for him. You know what? Maybe it will be. Uh, I don't think it'll be as good as a lot of people are fearing, but this is bigger than whether or not Donald Trump is going to enjoy short-term benefit from doing the right thing. And if he prevents Robert Mueller from testifying, you, you cannot allow that. That cannot be allowed to stand, and there must be some sort of repercussion, and impeachment is really the only one that exists for Congress to pursue. Now, speaking of subpoenas... This Don Jr. subpoena battle is uh, fascinating to me. Uh, This is a situation where just after Mitch McConnell, the head of the Republican Senate, declared that the Mueller investigation is over. Move on, everybody. Nothing to see here. We haven't even had Robert Mueller testify yet. We're just going to move on. The day after we learned that it was the, uh, the, the Senate committee headed by Richard Burr, senator from North Carolina, Republican senator, has subpoenaed Don Trump Jr. Now, the reaction to this has been both fascinating and infuriating uh, because Richard Burr has basically been uh, treated as if he was Benedict Arnold uh, within the Republican Party. Uh, Everyone has gone after him. Donald Trump Jr. has gone after him. Fellow senators have gone after him. Rand Paul, uh, Tom Tillis, the fellow Republican from uh, North Carolina, Uh, All sorts of people have gone after Richard Burr for having the audacity to subpoena Donald Trump Jr. to get his testimony about the Mueller investigation. Now, you would have thought, you would have thought in the reaction to this that uh, Richard Burr has demanded that uh, Donald Trump Jr. come in uh, to his committee and live and publicly on national television be waterboarded. (laughs) Or maybe have some of his fingers removed. I mean, some sort of torture. Pick whatever torture you want. You would have thought that's what has been required now of Donald Trump Jr. That's not what's being required. All that's being required is that Donald Trump Jr. come in and answer questions under oath. In a normal world, that's not that big of a deal. Is it an inconvenience? Sure. But if you're telling the truth, it's not a problem. So why... Is Donald Trump Jr. so exercised about this? And why are other Republicans so remarkably agitated about this that they need to condemn Burr for simply issuing the subpoena? That, to me, is a very interesting series of questions that demand answers and are not consistent with any of this being an exoneration of Donald Trump or his family with regard to the Mueller investigation. Now, one of the key elements of obstruction of justice against Donald Trump has been that he apparently told the White House counsel, Don McGahn, to fire Robert Mueller. And then he told Don McGahn to lie about the fact that he had told Don McGahn to fire Robert Mueller. And Don McGahn was apparently ready to resign because Donald Trump was doing all sorts of his, in his words, quote, crazy shit. Correct. Or asking him to do all sorts of crazy shit. Well, the report came out last night that Don McGahn has been asked since the Mueller report came out at least twice to issue a statement saying that he did not uh, uh, believe that Donald Trump 
was obstructing justice in that interchange with him. McGahn has declined to issue those statements. Now, that sounds very damaging to Trump. In a rational world, it would be. I mean, here you have the President of the United States saying to the former White House counsel, hey, look, you've got to issue a statement here saying that this is not true, and McGahn saying, eh, not going to do it. Uh, that eff- effectively says that it's true, right? Well, but when you read between the lines, when you read carefully, my concern here is that there, there are some tea leaves that indicate that if McGahn is allowed to testify or forced to testify, currently he's being prevented from testifying and he apparently doesn't want to testify. But here's my prediction. If McGahn ever does testify, what's going to happen is that some Republican kissing Trump's ass is going to ask him his personal opinion on whether or not Trump was obstructing justice when he told him to fire Mueller. And McGahn, whether it's because it's true or because he's looking to thread the needle here in a way that avoids Trump's wrath, is going to say, no, I didn't personally feel that he was obstructing justice. Now, legally, that's irrelevant. It means nothing what his personal feelings or opinions are about what Trump was doing. But in the world we're living in, that's game, set, match. Because that's all the nut jobs on the right, Fox News Channel, talk radio, the the Republicans in the Senate and in the House. That's all they're going to need. The Jim Jordans of the world. Aha! See? Even the guy he obstructed justice with doesn't believe he was obstructing justice. That's the world we live in. You can put it in a tweet, and it's devastating. Don McGahn doesn't believe that uh, Donald Trump obstructed justice. Now, do I know for sure that's the way it would work out? No. But that certainly seems like that's the way it would work out, or at least that's a very likely possibility. So even where Donald Trump is most dead to rights... It's clear that people are still, for whatever reason, protecting him in a way that will prevent his utter destruction. And there's another element of the Russian investigation that's gotten a lot of news this week, and that deals with the FBI. And, you know, this idea that the the right wing has created that there was this whole investigation was bogus from the beginning. It was corrupt. This was a, a coup attempt to try to get Donald Trump. And I've always said, this, none of this makes any damn sense because we didn't know about it until after Trump got elected. <laughs> so if you're, if you're going to create an insurance policy or some sort of a coup of a guy who no one even thought was going to win, don't you think that some of this information would have been made public during the campaign, especially 10 days before the election when Hillary Clinton gets hit by the same FBI op- reopening the investigation into her emails in a way that probably cost her the election? Come on, people. Use your damn brains. I mean, this is not that difficult, but unfortunately, most people are... Idiots! Especially within the, the Trump cult. I love the poorly educated. I mean, these are the people who Trump is relying on to not use their damn brains. Well, James Comey did a very interesting town hall on CNN, which I thought he came off once again as very credible. It's incredibly depressing to me that Comey is viewed far, 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 far less uh, in a positive way among Republicans than Donald Trump is. Because James Comey, while he's hardly perfect and he's in love with his own virtue, which is probably his greatest weakness, is an honest guy who's trying to do the right thing. And he's a large part of the reason why Donald Trump is president today. 
And yet Donald Trump is viewed far, 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 far more favorably among Republicans. Donald Trump ethically is is a complete dirtbag in every possible way. James Comey is not. I mean, I, I mean, if only on the on the standpoint of of honesty. And yet there are people all the time, and now they're not a large part of the population, but they all the time, I mean, these nut jobs, these Colt 45 members on Twitter who think that James Comey has been proven to be a perjurer and this horrible liar and this terrible person. I'm like, are you, you cannot be serious. You, you simply cannot be serious. You cannot be serious. And, but that's where we are, where it, everything's a tribe and you get told whatever you want to believe by your favorite media outlet. And that's where we are. And, you know, as far as uh, other FBI officials, former top FBI lawyer James Baker did an interview on MSNBC where uh, he's basically saying this is all bullcrap. The beginnings of this investigation were legitimate. This was about Australia informing us about Russian operatives making contact with Papadopoulos, this James Papadopoulos character who was part of the Trump campaign. We would have been derelict in our duty if we didn't investigate this. This is not all about the Steele dossier. I've never understood this. I really don't. I do not understand the logic of this. The Steele dossier, yeah, some of it turned out not to be true. But again, we never knew about the Steele dossier until after the election was over and Trump had been elected. In fact, the Electoral College had already been voted by the time we publicly saw the Steele dossier. It was a small part of a larger picture about why this investigation was able to get FISA warrants. And by the way, the judge who approved the FISA warrant was made aware of who was paying for the Steele dossier. It was a full page footnote on this. This was not hidden. There's nothing wrong with what the FBI did here. It was not spying. And one of the more interesting things that James Baker says is that Trump's intimidation tactics against members of the FBI, for instance, work because everyone is afraid to speak out because they know that he'll use his Twitter feed to destroy them. To which I tweeted, well, we now know what Trump really uses his Twitter feed for. It's a weapon of mass obstruction. I wish I would have thought of that sooner. It's a weapon of mass obstruction. Trump's Twitter feed, whether it's trying to influence witnesses or tamper with the Paul Manafort jury or intimidate people within his own government from speaking out to tell the truth. His Twitter feed is a weapon of mass obstruction. And when you're president and have that kind of power, it really is legally the definition of obstruction of justice. It's not free speech. When you're president and you have, for instance, the pardon power or the ability to hire and fire people, that's why no other president would ever think about speaking about an ongoing investigation of this type that involved them in their own campaign. But Trump thinks nothing of it because he doesn't give a damn about norms or standards or the truth or the future or precedence or anything else like that. And now here we go again. I mean, Rudy Giuliani canceled his trip, but he was going to go to the Ukraine, of all places, to ask for them to help uh, both diminish the Mueller report and to potentially stir up some crap on Joe Biden. Well, I mean, this, is, this is, of course, Rudy is the one who told us there's nothing wrong with getting negative information about your opponent from Russia. Well, now it's the Ukraine. 
And now the, the trip was canceled, but that, I mean, my gosh, to make that publicly known as your intent, <laughs> it shows that no lessons have been learned. Then we're going to go through the damn same damn thing again in 2020. Nothing has been done to stop this. I mean, and, and there's all sorts of other things going on that I don't have time to get into. I'm sure we'll get into in Wednesday's edition of the Individual One podcast. It looks, according to the Washington Post, that Trump's going to turn this year's Fourth of July celebration into a, a personal campaign rally. We've got the tariffs issue that still has not been resolved that the stock market is spooked about, where, where Trump is totally wrong about the tariffs, doesn't seem to understand them. If he doesn't, if he does understand them, he's totally lying about the nature of the tariffs. Uh, the stock market is now below where it was 18 months ago. Uh, despite tremendously good economic data, the stock market should be much higher than it than it, and it currently is, all because of Trump's egotistical and nonsensical crusade on these tariffs, specifically with China, all because he promised during the campaign that he would rip up all our trade deals with China once they got to deal with him. You know, all of our problems would be solved. It's all bullcrap. It's not based in fact, and it's not good for the economy. Correct. I mean, and it's certainly not good for the stock market in the short run. We'll see what happens this week with that. And I mentioned in the interview with David Schuster that he's now got a, a new nickname for wh- who might be one of his major competitors for the 2020 uh, presidential race, and that is the South Bend mayor, Pete Buttigieg. He's calling him Alfred E. Newman. Now, uh, Alfred E. Newman, by the way, it's a pretty good comparison. Uh, Buttigieg looks a lot like Alfred E. Newman. The problem, as Buttigieg pointed out, is that very few Americans, especially young Americans, know who Alfred E. Newman is anymore because, you know, Mad Magazine isn't even around anymore. It it was a cultural standard back in the, uh, you know, what was it, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I guess. But, uh, you know, that's child's play in comparison to how Trump will handle Buttigieg if Buttigieg is the Democratic nominee. And it's not just because he's gay. It's because he's gay, he's short, he's the mayor of South Bend, he's 36, 37 years old. There's all sorts of fodder there that plays right into Trump's willingness to go places no one else is willing to go. So while I see the appeal and I see the potential of Buttigieg being the Democratic nominee, I am not convinced that Buttigieg is the guy uh, to beat Donald Trump. Trump knows that that person is Joe Biden, as I've been saying for many, many months. And his actions make it very clear he's afraid of Joe Biden. But will Joe Biden be able to get through the Democratic uh, primary unscathed in a way that he's still able to take on Donald Trump with the same uh, kind of ferocity that, that Trump currently fears? I don't know about that. And that's why the uh, the percentages that we end each edition of the Individual One podcast uh, with have not changed. Still just a 7% chance that, that Trump is removed from office or does not finish his first term in office. And a 49% chance that he is reelected regardless of who he goes up against in the 2020 uh, campaign. That'll do it for this edition of the Individual One Podcast. As I said, lots to get to in our next edition, even without Mueller testifying on Wednesday. That'll come Wednesday morning, Los Angeles, California time. Until then, please make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. My name is John Ziegler. You've been listening to the Global Story Network. (laughs) 